Okay, good evening, everyone. Um, thank you, Marcus. Uh, I know you're feeling a bit under the weather, so just, just really thank you for, for that worship. Um, yeah, so it almost feels to me like we, we shouldn't, should be sitting closer. And um, even with the worship, uh, I could have, it could have easily been an acoustic set, and I think it would have been uh, very lovely. But um, just welcome, and I hope you, you feel welcome um, as a small little huddle, a family here together. Okay, so this evening, I am speaking about Live As You Are Called, single. Uh, quite an, an intense topic. And um, so the text that I have is 1 Corinthians 7 from 17 to 40. And I want to give us a, a moment that we can get our Bibles and, and get that text ready. And while you do that, I want to ask you a question. Uh, and the question is, what do you think uh, the gift of singleness is? And, and do you think you have that? Um, or do you know somebody who has that gift? Um, and so the reason is, last week, uh, uh, well, we're reading through this text, and already Paul was saying he wished that everyone was like him, um, and that they ha would have the gift of, of singleness. So just for yourself, try, try and figure that out, and I, I hope to challenge some of our thoughts this evening on that topic. Okay, so I'm trying to see if somebody's still paging for their Bibles, but... I think we are ready. I'm going to read for us 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 14. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourselves of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were brought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed or virgins, I have no command from the Lord but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as through they had none, and those who mourn through, uh, uh, though they were not mourning, 
and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about all the things, how to please his wife. Um, yeah, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but I promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions is strong, um, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and as determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. It's all there. So, yeah, that is um, quite a shocking piece of passage. I want to open us up with just uh, maybe a bit of a note, because I think uh, per default everyone here says, well, that's not me. I do not have this, this, this gift of singleness that Paul so speaks about. Um, and some of you are already married, um, but just to, to make you think about it a little bit, if, if you're not married, if, even if you're dating, you're still kind of in the single phase. You don't have all the privileges of marriage. Um, and then at the same time, um, there's, there's various reasons to be single. Some of you are seeking, waiting. Um, some of you, um, ha maybe you've accepted it and you're just kind of where you're at at the moment. Um, but then for others, um, if, if you are married, then there's a good chance that half of you um, will be single again. You, your spouse is going to die, except if both of you die in the same instance, uh, a car accident or something. So in that manner, singleness is something that we all have to deal with at some point. How morbid that might sound, um, that is a truth. I cannot help but think of Johan's mother and after the passing of her husband. She has been single longer than, um, than she's been married. Um, and, and so this is a real reality. On top of that, uh, we deal with singles. How we think about singleness um, is, is a big thing, even as a married person. So. Yeah, so that, that's just a preliminary note. My roadmap uh, for, for today is then understanding our cultural moment, understanding why we think as we do. I always say we are fishes in water and we don't know what it is to be wet. 
Um, so it's firstly understanding our cultural moment, and then uh, I want to give us a right view of singleness uh, for Christians, and then uh, I, I want to uh, point us to our calling in light of eternity. So that is what you can expect. So first of all, um, our cultural moment. Today, people are getting married a lot later than they used to in the past. We, in a, whoa, what was that? An unprecedented moment. Um, yeah, uh, I think we're going to survive. Um, so, yeah, the, the fact is that most men now get married around about the age of 30, and women around about 26, and that is, that, that's just the average. So, uh, you would know many people who only get married later in their 30s. Um, and this is cause for a lot of anxiety in our culture. Um, people in their 20s are like, oh, okay, I'm now between uh, 25 and 30, um, especially the ladies, and they, they think, oh, um, well, I, I must look busy, you know, have, have, have to be dating. Um, but the question is, why is this happening? And uh, I'm not going to give a comprehensive answer, but there is some clues in our culture um, to understand this. And, and maybe one way to approach this is taking a bird's eye view of how people got married uh, from the past to our current age. Uh, so the first thing is, people used to have arranged marriages, um, and, and even in Western culture and in ancient societies, definitely in the time of Jesus. Uh, and the idea was that romantic love was important. Uh, it, it, even at the, the 18th, 19th century, we see that if you read Jane Austen, uh, you will see there's, there's love in these novels. But more than love, what is more prominent was social and financial motives. So um, you had to marry for security. You were your parents' inheritance. And, and so it was very important that there was uh, good and deep family ties, that it was a, a family decision um, who you marry. But um, by the 19th century, and uh, this, this could be because of the Enlightenment period, it could have been uh, for modernization, the increase in wealth, the rise of individualism, um, we kind of see uh, a focus more on love. And what, what happened was we, we saw a new movement, a calling on someone, what they called courtship. Uh, and it was the idea that a woman could invite uh, a boy to her house, and uh, under the supervision of the house, they, they, they met. And, um, and so the parents uh, really had a good idea, and he could meet the family and see if he fits into, into that culture and narrative. Um, and then there was a, another shift, and, and this shift, um, again, maybe because of how the Enlightenment influenced us, um, and uh, a focus on modernization and the, uh, on the individual, we, we see uh, the rise of dating. Um, and it was um, penned in the early 19th century. It was, we, we picked this up in, in writings. And uh, it, it, it writes something like this. They say, now the young man did not so much come in, but instead took the woman out to places of entertainment to get to know her. Um, not only does this process more, it, it individualized more the, the whole uh, scene for, for getting together, um, and it removed the family from, from the context. It also changed the focus from romance 
from friendship and character assessment to spending money and being seen and having fun. And, and so if you're in high school, you basically go to your father and say, I want to go out, where's the money? Um, and, and still today, that is, that is how we kind of do our dating. We go out and we have fun. Um, so in more recent times, we now have a further escalation of this. And uh, by the turn of the 20th century, uh, we, we have what we call hookup culture. Um, and uh, we have the New York Times Magazine, an article on it reported, now teenagers found members of the opposite sex to be annoying and difficult, and dating involved you to, uh, uh, to be part in the hard work of give and take, communication, and learning to deal with someone who is different. In other words, they rightly perceived that dating involved you uh, at least in a preliminary way, to, to set yourself up for serious relationship, for marriage. And um, so one way they, they reacted to this, uh, they wanted to avoid all this, and so a new form of meeting partners was developed, and, and that is they just went straight to sex. Um, so a hookup is a simple sexual encounter, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to, there's, there's no strings attached, you don't have to, you don't have to date. Um, but you can, you can start dating after that. And in some senses, um, this advent of the hookup culture has meant that, um, that to some of us, we, we have one of the first societies with no clear cultural supported pathways for single adults to meet and to marry. Uh, the dating landscape is a, a little bit complex. Listen uh, to Mademoiselle magazine. Um, they, they say, our, uh, they call our era of relationships post-idealist. And what they mean by that is there isn't something like love. It, we've been disillusioned. Um, you know, marriage is just a cage. Um, and so forget that ideal and new pragmatic. So just take what you want, and if it is a sexual encounter, that's good. Um, and maybe it escalates a bit. You, you might not think you're there, but you're definitely influenced by some of these ideas. Wanda Umbrunska is the author of The Singular Generation, and she wrote of her peers in their 20s. She wrote, we do not have affairs. I love that word. It's, it sounds so decadent, affairs. Um, we do not have affairs. We have sexual friendships. We do not fall in love we build relationships. We do not date, we see each other. So where does this leave us? Um, many have come to fear marriage, um, and so many advise us to not date immediately, don't, don't marry so, so early, be careful of it. Um, rather wait. Um, and what, what we find because of this is that there is maybe more time for, for brokenness, for sexual encounters before marriage. And, and a lot of people now, we have a generation that takes a lot of that sexual brokenness into their relationships. Um, and one of the fruits of our contemporary culture's fear of marriage is that, that singles become perfectionistic and virtually impossible to satisfy as they look for prospective spouses. Unfortunately, this uh, perfectionism is, is often supported by gender stereotypes 
because the anecdotal evidence and the empirical studies show that males will look for near perfection in what? The physical looks of, of a woman. While women will look for partners who are financially well off. In other words, when contemporary people say they want a perfect mate, um, sexual and financial factors dominate our thinking. Um, and um, I wish we, we're so enveloped in this, we don't even know how to, to look differently um, on, on, on this. So what happens? Um, people tend to shy away from, from marriage, and, but they still want relationships. They still want, um, uh, to some extent, um, uh, sexual encounters, if, if you will. And, um, and so there is uh, this reaction in, in culture. I've, I've already said um, we have a culture that kind of marries later um, and ha potentially makes a lot of mistakes. So uh, if we look at feminism, um, at least in its worst state, not, not everything about it is necessarily um, bad, but um, there is a lot of articles where they say marriage is, is just a cage um, and um, we should be freed to do just what we want. Um, that's, that's very much the narrative of today, the individual, my needs, what I want. Um, and um, what's interesting, I, usually feminism is brought in a lot, so I, I want to focus a little bit on the males for this evening. There's now a movement they call MGTOW, men going their own way. Um, and there is a whole, a whole vocabulary that is basically a a-feminist or a non-feminist uh, movement, and at its worst, it's an anti-feminist movement. And, um, and this movement is trying to look out for men uh, that feel that they are exploited by, by women and, and that culture. Um, so it comes with, with terms like the sigma male, and um, uh, they've got the, the incel, the involuntary celibate. Um, and um, yeah, they, they, there's a lot of things like that. And people who kind of map that, that sphere for us, they call it the menosphere. Um, it is a collection of ideas for men. Um, and um, names that you would recognize is, is names like Jordan Peterson, speaking to men. And maybe more on the toxic side, um, um, Andrew Tate. And, um, and so that is one, one place how our culture is currently reacting. Um, and what did they seek to do? They, they seek to, to win the culture war or either just to, to opt out of it. Um, so that they would either want to exploit the other. It's kind of the word they have is the giga chad, um, the guy that gets all the girls um, and the girls who, who fall for that. And, and there's versions of this in feminism as well. But it just shows you the toxicity of of the culture. Um, on the other side, we have a culture that idealizes marriage, and many of us also come from that background, so you have this inner war between these different thoughts. Um, but we are bent on romantic relationships as being the end all of all our value and our meaning. Um, and look how the Disney movies generally portrayed romance for us. Um, it's an apocalyptic romance, and um, it fulfills us completely spiritually and emotionally. Um, our mates are perfect. They, they will just do everything for us. Um, and, and the narrative generally plays out. It begins by telling life stories only when two parties are about to find true love. 
And then when they do, the story fades out. And the message is basically what matters is romance. Everything else is a prologue or an afterword. Just get married and life would be perfect. Um, so, in a big sense, our church has, has bought in it, maybe from its own reasons, but we are also immersed in this culture. Uh, the church kind of ostracizes singles, um, and they, they kind of see them as anemic, as, as weak, uh, especially the older you get, and I've heard this from, from men and women, and, and uh, a place where you can typically see this is if you go to a wedding, and, uh, and so people will ask you, so, who's the... Who's the, 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 the your significant other, and if you say you don't have one, then a lot of times uh, they would kind of react as if you are a, um, and you have an amputated leg or something. It's like, uh, uh, yeah, something, something weird. But I, I find actually that that for me is one of the, the, the best places for me to, to engage people, um, is at weddings. Um, it's the best places where I can talk about God and just um, really speak about uh, some proper things in life. Um, it is already a high occasion, so um, so people are quite aware of things that are important. Um, on the other side, I also hear within the church that the only place um, that you can really get sanctified is within marriage. Um, and really, when you get married, then uh, suddenly um, you have this 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 mirror that just shows you all your faults, and and you will be sanctified. Um, and the thing is, I do agree with that. That does happen. God does do that. Um, we read this in Timothy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, and I could really advise you to take that book and read it. Read it five times. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. But if we think that, that God can only save you through your spouse or can only sanctify you through your spouse, you really have a wrong idea of what Christianity is. And I hope to address some of that. So, okay, I've, I've tried to frame a little bit um, of our cultural moments and some of the problems that we might be facing. Um, now I want to get to what is then the right view of singleness? What is, how should Christians see singleness? Um, so Christianity's founder, right there in the name, um, Jesus Christ, he was single. Um, his main theologian, Paul, St. Paul, he was single. John the Baptist, he was single. And in some senses, that should at least give us pause. We should at least think, okay, this is interesting. Jesus is seen as the perfect man who, had, who never sinned, never sinned. Um, he was seen as mature, um, and yet he was never married. Paul, uh, Paul's assessment in what we, we just read, he, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, that Singleness is a good condition blessed by God. And in many circumstances, it is actually better than marriage. Some strong words there uh, from Paul. So, um, I, I, I think it is, is interesting because this uh, had as a result in the first century a revolutionary attitude um, that the early church, they did not pressure people to, to get married. That was very countercultural for their time. And if you go read this piece again, you will see he says, widows, you can remarry, but he thinks it might be better. You don't have to. Um, 
And, uh, and so the idea was that, that you were okay and uh, single. Um, just take the, the pagan attitude of that time. Augustine, the, the emperor of the time, fined widows after two years if they did not get remarried. Um, why did he do that? Because widows put a pressure, financial pressure on the state. And also, um, Rome wanted sons. Um, so you need sons for, for an economy and for war, for stability. But in Christianity, um, it was the church who, who looked after their widows. Okay, so some will say, well, that is Paul. I don't think we should listen to Paul, who is single, to tell me about marriage. Um, and it's almost like he says, well, uh, Christ did not tell me about these things, um, so I've, I've got a few opinions. Um, but then I want to, to point you to how Christ actually um, talked about singleness. And we've got a few passages how he thought about this. The first one is in Matthew 19, verse 8, and he actually speaks on divorce, um, but then he gives a teaching on singleness. So we're not going to get stuck on divorce um, we're going to see what Jesus does with, does with this. So I'll, I'll read for us. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with a wife, is it better not to marry? But he said to them, not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. What I find fascinating is when... Jesus says how difficult marriage is, and the disciples respond to, well, should we stay single? Then he says, okay, wait, wait maybe I, I over-explained this a bit. Um, no, marriage, is, it doesn't do that. He, he doesn't defend marriage. He says, let me tell you about singleness. Um, let me tell you that there is something that we need to consider. So he says that singleness might be better. A second passage um, a second encounter, um, Jesus points us to our heavenly family. Uh, he says that we are adopted into a new family, and this is in Mark 10 from verse 29 to 30. Um, I'll read for us. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or land. He's just continuing with these things that you can inherit. For my sake... And for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now um, in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in this age and the age uh, and um, in this age and to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So I've already kind of alluded to this, but Jesus is using inheritance language. He's using family language. And he's saying, well, many who are following me will lose their family. And this especially happens in uh, the persecuted church. If you are a Muslim in, in, in a Muslim country and you convert to Christianity, per default, 
you will lose your biological family. Um, and even so in South Africa, the chances are very good if you're a Muslim, if you give up your faith, that you will immediately be ostracized by your family. And, um, and so, but many of, of them do this, and then when, when they do this, they, they find a new family, a spiritual family in the church. And that is what we are called to do. We are called to be the kind of family that people can hold enough um, uh, or can be bold enough to move, to make such a radical decision. So he says inheritance is, uh, we always associate it with our biological families, but Jesus says, no, um, inheritance, the inheritance that he's talking about is a spiritual inheritance, and that is far more important. It is a far higher view of it. So Jesus is redefining legacy, what we receive, is redef or what we leave, leave off, is redefining inheritance, what we receive, and is redefining family. Okay, then we have uh, one more clause with Jesus, and this is um, in Mark 3 from 31 to 35, and, and he says, um, well, uh, this is another instance I read for us. And his mothers and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him um, and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around, around him, he said, Here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And this was shocking in the ancient world. Um, many um, commentators say this might have been the most shocking thing that Jesus ever said in the Gospels. And the reason for this is um, he basically insulted his own family. And a version of that might be if you kind of leave your family um, to just be with another culture or another family. Um, it's a missionary who says, I'm going to leave. And they say, there's enough work here to do. Um, you insult your, your parents. Um, but, yeah, but Jesus um, is calling us to that. He says, um, you were, uh, you're identified first as a son. Within the kingdom, you're identified as a child of God. That's your primary identity, not, not your biological family so much anymore. And it just shows you how we, we, we struggle with this. We, we really struggle to, to see this. Maybe as well with our individualistic culture, we have the freedom to do it so easily. Um, so that's just a, a baseline of, of, of singleness and, and how Jesus saw it. On the topic of sanctification, um, I've, I've said that in marriages we do get sanctified, and, and I think that is actually the primary purpose, is to help someone um, become the best version of himself. If you see someone, you need to see the potential that they have and fall in love with that. See, see someone as God sees them, past the imperfections. Um, not as someone perfect, but someone that will become perfect. And so when... John Calvin speaks of sanctification. He says, the secret to sanctification is the interaction of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. And so singles, like all other sinners, typically dismiss this first element of the formula 
and therein lies the tragedy um, yeah that's that that we ignore God um, Paige Benton she she wrote she says um, we have the saying um, it is uh, or hell has have no fury as a woman scorned but she said much more important should maybe be a saying that life has no tragedy as God ignored and so every problem that we have is a theological problem and the ab- habitual discontent that singles have is no exception it's a theological issue and by the way people in marriages also at times have discontent go go um, go ask them and these are theological problems um, so when we we think of this if, if Calvin says that we need to know God we need knowledge of God um, and if we are thinking that maybe God doesn't love me as much because I'm, I'm still single um, or um, maybe he'll love me more I'll know that he loves me if, if I, I get married um, this is not correct uh, God can uh, he can be no less good to, to you on an average Tuesday or, or Sunday evening opposed to um, that monumental Friday when he was crucified for you. God is, is always good towards us. Um, it is part of his essence. If, if you ask if, if, if God is, is less good, the answer is a resounding no. His goodness is not the effect of his disposition, um, but the essence of his person. Not an attitude, but an attribute. It's not what God does. It is who he is towards us. God is always good, and, and we need to know that. Um, and then accepting our states of relationship, um, single or dating or married, um, and, and for singles, whether it is temporary or permanent, it, it does not hinge on the speculation about answers that, uh, what, that God gives us on all our whys, why am I not married, um, but rather on the, the celebration of the life he has given. So accepting where you are, as you are, I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband. Uh, and sometimes they, couples will tell you just, you just need to grow a little bit more. Um, and, and that could be a, a proper lie. Um, and on the other side, you're also not single because you're too mature to possibly need a husband. Um, that's also a lie. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me, because this is the best that he has for me. Um, and it's, it's like the psalmist says, he says, I shall not want, in whatever condition you find yourself in. If we apply this, um, the knowledge of God is always a catalyst. It will always transform our view of ourselves. Um, and it keeps identity the right side up with the nouns and the, um, the modifiers in place. Um, so here's the question. Am I a Christian single? Or am I a single Christian? I can maybe ask you that same question. Are you a single Christian or are you a Christian single? The discrepancy in the grammatical construction uh, may be somewhat subtle, but the difference in mindset is really profound. Um, Which word is determinative and which word is descriptive? 
So maybe, maybe we just go to the determinative word. Are you, are you single or are you Christian? Are you single or are you Christian? What defines you? What defines your identity? Um, so what we need to, to realize is that we as people are basically um, amnesiacs. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. So I am a single Christian, and my identity is not found in my marital status. It is found in my redemptive status. And that, that should be the case for all of us, even if you're married. So from the single perspective, singleness is not a carte blanche. It's not a blank check to just be selfish, do what you want. And at the same time, to be married uh, is not sufficient. It's not a sufficient countermeasure uh, for yourself. Uh, marriage cannot save you. Jesus, Jesus does. The gospel is the only antidote to egocentricity. Christ did not come to simply save us from our sins. He came to save us from ourselves and our ideas about how the world should be. And so as a, a Christian, um, Christian growth mandates relational richness. Um, I, yeah, I would actually hope to say more on this, but uh, for sake of time, I'm going to move us a little bit there. Um, so we kind of established that, that Christianity is, or not singleness is good. But Paul goes one step further. He says it might be even better than marriage. Um, and so what, what does Paul mean here? And uh, maybe one way to see this is, uh, as with the, the early church, they were speaking into their culture, and the Christian gospel um, had a hope for a future kingdom that de-idolized marriage. So if you're a Christian today, Christians who remain single um, can make a statement that our future is not guaranteed by our family, but by God. So singles can be a juxtaposition. It can be a mirror for couples um, to say, don't, don't put too much weight in your marriage. Uh, there is more to life than just your marriage. And at the same time, we need Christian singles that are really healthy to maybe speak into a culture that is so bent on, um, on the sexual and the self-fulfillment. If, if we think on the LGBTQ community, and, and it is a sensitive topic, um, it is very complex, but, but we need to know that, um, that we can show that I am single and I am more than all right. Um, I am totally fulfilled because I do not need someone else to, to fulfill me fully. Maybe another thing why Paul says that singleness might be better is because of the focus that we have. Uh, you're, you are not bound to anyone else in in terms of time, you have time to do things. I am currently uh, a house father of four boys, um, soon to be five in, in a children's home, Echo. And this is something that I would not have chosen if I was in a relationship at that time. Um, for certainly I would not have chosen it if, if I was married. And so I can do something that married people can't, it's better. In, in some senses. Um, um, so married people have their gifts, uh, but single people have theirs. 
It is interesting when we go tutoring, I, I generally find it's the singles who, who come along. Um, and uh, I think that those who are married have, have different gifts, but, um, but uh, there is something to be said about that. I spoke to um, the founder of Echo Yakustradum um, uh, the other day, and he said, Gior, you must have um, good secrets. So bad secrets must come to light, but you must have good secrets as a Christian. And uh, in some senses, I want to juxtapose that. Um, Johan gave a sermon on singleness, a really good talk as well, that you can go listen to a few years back. Um, but he said, we do a lot for marriage people. Like, if you get married, there's at least four ceremonies. You have a kitchen tea, then you have the bachelorette, you've got the bachelors, then you've got the, the wedding ceremony. And he says, and, and he almost kind of felt ashamed. He's like, yo, we need to, like, figure out what we do for singles. And I want to tell you, I don't need it. I don't really want it. Um, I have my good secrets. And Yaku Stradon said, um, we're going to be surprised one day in heaven what was really counted as valuable and worthwhile. What was our values on this earth? What did we think was really valuable? Um, so if we take all of this into consideration um, that I just, just said, what, what does Paul mean with the gift of singleness? I asked you that question at the beginning. And for many of us, we, we think that the singleness means a complete lack or, of, of interest or a desire for mar marriage. Um, and if we have this view, then um, singleness is to experience no emotional struggle, no restlessness, and no wish to get married. And no wonder people then say, I do not have the gift of singleness. But I think we, are, we might be a little bit too quick when we look at how Paul defined um, a gift. Um, we can maybe even see that, that it is not necessarily, all singleness is not necessarily um, good. You can be single for bad reasons. For, you can have a selfish spirit, you can have an inability to maintain friendships, or you can even have a disdain for the opposite sex. Um, so not all singleness is a gift. Um, but in all his writings, when Paul uses the word gift, um, he means by it the ability God gives to build others up. Paul is not speaking then of some kind of elusive, stress-free life. The giftness of being single for Paul lay in the freedom um, that it gave him to concentrate on ministry. He, he kind of found the loophole, he discovered and he capitalized on the unique features um, of being single. And this, this might mean that Paul might have had his, his struggles in, in singleness. So when you have the gift, or when, when you find yourself single, uh, there may be indeed struggles, but the main thing is that God is helping you to grow spiritually and be fruitful in the lives of others despite these feelings. That the means, uh, well, it, it, it means that a single gift is not just for a select few, and it is not necessarily lifelong, though it might be. Um, it may be a grace given for a finite period of time. 
This kind of brings me to our last section. Um, I know we're, um, yeah, uh, I want to quickly get, get through this last piece. But we, we see Paul writing on our calling. He says, consider your calling as Christians. And he, he gives this list where, um, where he says those who live now should live as if then, if you're married, as if you're not married. If you have goods, as if, uh, as, as if you can't deal with people. And Paul is not advocating that we sell everything and everyone become missionaries. Um, that's not the point. What Paul is saying is that what you have here, you cannot keep. That this world is passing and that there is a greater reality to come. He says, consider eternity within your marriage and when you are single. Um, when we, we look at Christian eschatology, there is no place for human marriage in this. What do I mean? If you're a Mormon and you, and you die in marriage, you get a planet, and for millennia you get to populate it. Um, that's not the Christian view. Um, Christ says, in heaven, um, there is no marriage. You will be like the angels. And what we, what we kind of have, I think Paul, when he speaks here about slavery, um, in our text, he says, um, if you were called, if you became a Christian while you are a slave, a literal slave, they know that you are free in Christ. And if you are a free man, if you're not a slave and you became a Christian, then consider yourselves a slave to Christ. And in that same vein, I almost want to say, as a Christian, as if you are married, then know that you are single when it comes to Christ. And when you are single, know that that also will be restored, that you will be married one day with Christ. You will be united with the church. And our marriages are real things. It's like a little kid who has a toy Ferrari. Um, it's, it's a real little Ferrari. Um, but and it's something really cool. Um, don't take a kid's Ferrari. Um, but that's not the real thing. Um, and so our marriages only point us to the marriage banquet to come, saying, uh, think about that. So if you, if you are a... Um, what I want to say is don't waste your life. If you're a couple, open up your marriage, open up your home, um, have an open-door policy. Try and practice that um, as a Christian virtue, as a value for your home. Um, don't be so selfish with your time. Um, and if you're single, then if you take a gap year, don't just go and go on a binge travel and drink and, and just do it for fun. Go on mission trips. Go and see churches. Go and read. Go sit in um, monasteries and libraries. Go... Go see some cool stuff. Get involved in soup kitchens. Come to our tutoring. Next Sunday we've got uh, a prayer an hour early before church. Come, come and pray. Um, start a project. Just stop doom scrolling. Um, just do something that is worthwhile. And especially for the kingdom. So uh, I've got a final closing um, idea here. It's a philosopher, romantic philosopher, uh, Schendel, and he wrote to his, in, uh, in, in the 18th century, he wrote, I see no trace of the passions which make for deeper joy. And basically he was writing about uh, romantics. He, he said that people, 
don't love passionately enough anymore. Uh, they're making uh, romance less. Um, and in that same vein, I think we could listen to Jesus in Revelation when he said, you have forgotten your first love. The things that you are busy with is useless. You have forgotten your first love. How do you spend your time? Do you have a view of eternity? Something that is really valuable. Uh, I would want to pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness towards us, for the gift of singleness. Uh, Father, help us to, to love you and to recognize what great freedom we have in you, whether we are married or single, and in, in many things that we can choose. Father, may, may we glorify you with this and call others to glorify you, to see something higher. I pray all of this in Christ's name, you who were fully man and yet perfect. Christ, you made a way for us, um, and you give us an eternal inheritance. Amen.